You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. The chairman of McAllister Machinery is P.E. McAllister, who is 100 years old and a veteran of World War II. What we have today is the absolute apex of the arc when it comes to personal bravery, how he's lived his life, how he's inspired others, and that is Medal of Honor recipient Sammy Davis. My name is Robert Vane. I'm the principal of Veteran Strategies, and I simply cannot thank you enough, Sergeant Davis, for joining us. Well, thank you, brother. It's an honor to be here with you. Whoa, the honor is way beyond all ours. The list of people who wanted me to tell you and your wife hello... We'll worry about that after the show. But as soon as I told people I was coming down here, it was universal respect, admiration, friendliness, gasping. How lucky are you? Ask this question for me kind of thing. So uh, let's get right to it. We can't thank you enough. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, brother. You have been a center point of a lot of things in Hoosier life. Even though you weren't born here, you came here, I believe, right before your senior year in high school. Is that correct? Moved to Mooresville? I was born in Dayton, Ohio, Wright Pad Air Force Base. But yes, sir. So even as an adopted Hoosier, what's it like? What does Indiana mean to you? What did Mooresville mean to you, being a Hoosier? Mooresville was home. The way the people treated me when I came here originally, they just brought me into the family. And that's why it's always been home after we travel in the military and I decided to come home. So that's why we built the house here and we're home. Indiana is a, I would dare to say it's, it's fair. It's, it's fair to call it a patriotic state. Oh, definitely. Uh, for years it had like the fourth largest national guard in the country, even though in population, it's much lower than that. It's has amazing Patriots list goes on and on folks. Have been here. How have you had your military service? How do you feel being a veteran in Indiana? Extremely proud, trying to live up to live up to the legacy that the veterans before me has set, and it's something that's ongoing. I, I still try to stand tall simply because I want to be as tall as they were. You understand that? Absolutely. It's Completely. an honor to be a Hoosier veteran. Both my parents were in the Marine Corps, and my mother was actually the first uh, female recruit after World War II in the wow. Marine Corps. And uh, I've had six uncles, all six have served, a niece and nephew have served, and my son's done two tours in Afghanistan. Outstanding. What's it like, and my brother was in the Army, and my other brother, who you know, Michael, who's the airline pilot, he was in the Air National Guard for 10 years. What's it like to be among veterans in Indiana and hear those stories about their dads or their daughters or their uncles or their aunts or sisters? I love it. It's being, it makes you feel part of the family, the, the, the Hoosier veteran family. And you are indeed, but when you talk to the other Hoosier veterans and get to know them, it makes your heart even feel richer. It's, it's excellent. Before we go through a little bit of chronology, there's, there's one or maybe two things I want to ask you about in the same theme of the first few minutes. How do you feel when you go to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and see the 500 race and just the fact that it is so attuned to remembering veterans and Memorial Day. The way they have always treated veterans before I joined the military, I got to go to the Indy 500 and the way they talked to and talked about the veterans just helped enforce in my heart what veterans are all about. 
so I, I've always loved to go to the Indy 500 and meet everybody and talk with people. And it's been excellent. Have you met anyone there who kind of awestruck you a little bit over the years? Well, I've met several people that's awestruck me over the years, except right now my mind's not there. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> but that's what one of the reasons why I love going back. You never know who you're going to meet. You know, just walking through the crowd and you go, oh, wow. Yeah. When you stand there at attention when they play taps. Oh, yes, sir. It's it's my most favorite moment of my most favorite sporting event. Who or what are you thinking about at that moment? Well, there's a lot of pictures that come into my mind. The flag rippling is is always one of the things that's that's when I'm watching all this happening before me. Wow. Pappy Boynton was one of the first men that I got to meet at the Indy 500. Uh, and I don't know if he was there officially, but this was after I had earned the Medal of Honor. And we're in the crowd, and I look over, and there's Pappy Boynton standing there. So I went over, and Pappy was an awesome man and we were friends so did he have the medal around his neck and you had the medal around yours so that was immediate connection or was there some no we, we did not have our medals on at that moment uh seems like later there, there was a program a, a private gathering in one of the rooms and we took our medals and put it on so in fact Pepe, pappy put my medal on my neck and i put his medal on his neck that was so, awesome that's terrific yes sir for for those listening pappy boenton was a Famous World War II aviator in the Pacific. Bob Bob Black Sheep. It was portrayed by Robert Conrad in the TV show Bob Bob Black Sheep. Did you ever meet Robert Conrad? I have not met Robert Conrad, no, sir. Did Did it make it easier for you to bond with your fellow recipients when Indianapolis, along with a tremendous amount of philanthropy, constructed the Medal of Honor Memorial on the canal. What was that like? That's 1999, maybe 1998? I was very much involved in creating that project, sir. And the the response that we received when we put the word out, uh, John Hodwall from IPL was the man that funded the whole thing. And we went out talking to schools, out talking to businesses, and always, always the response was, yes, we want to get behind this. Yes, we want to get behind that. When I go to Indianapolis today and we get to go down to the memorial, uh, I touch those walls and brings back all the memories of all the people that came together because that's not just one person that built that. That was all of us from Indiana is what built that memorial, and it's a beautiful memorial. Was it the largest gathering of recipients outside of maybe Washington, D.C. or an inauguration? It was certainly one of the largest gatherings, yes, sir. Definitely. It was a fantastic week. When you go there, if you were to leave here and go there today, do you have a particular person you would seek out first? I touch all the names that I can. That's one of the things that I enjoy so much about going to the wall. In the right light, you can see the little handprints on the glass. Where people have touched? Little hands. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, big hands are cool, but I personally, if you see a little hand way up high, that means that a daddy or a grandpa held him up so they could touch that name. And that just always makes my heart feel so good to walk, you know, to get just in the right light and you can see this little handprint up there. And that just makes your heart feel good talking about the wall in Washington, D.C., it was heavily criticized when it was first conceived and executed there on the mall. The black but, wall. Yes, sir. But its its turnaround is absolutely phenomenal in how it was received initially and how it's perceived today. Yes, sir. How did you receive it initially and how do you perceive it today? Well, when I first heard that they were going to build this wall in Washington, D.C., out of black granite. I thought, well, we do need, we do need some place to, where people can see the names of their loved ones. But when 
we when I was there for the dedication, and we went down the night before the dedication, and it was beautiful. And I said, I can't wait to see it in daylight. And then when daylight came, it was even more awesome and inspiring. And I've been very proud of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Jan Scruggs and I got to be close friends. God bless him. It's it's amazing how popular it is. Not amazing in the sense that you can't expect Americans to commemorate their dead, because clearly they do. Yes, sir. And they're war veterans. But it's it's has to be one of the most visited spots in D.C. I read that all the time. Well, I, we talk to schools all over the United States, and I won't say every school that we talk to, but a good majority of the schools, one of the first things that kids will tell me, yeah, we just got to go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Uh, so many of the kids will tell me that Johnston Dunlap, is one of the, my men, one of my sergeants in Vietnam. He was the one that encouraged me to play the harmonica. And the amount of kids that'll tell me, yeah, we got to touch Johnston Dunlap's name. <laughs> so all the kids know about John Dunlap. God bless him. Pushing back their chronology a little bit, you entered the military in 1965, is that no, correct? No, sir, 66. I graduated 66. from high school in 66. There were five of us that went down to join. And, well, actually, we were still, we hadn't graduated yet, but we knew we wanted to join the military. We actually were all going to go down and join the Marine Corps. And we went to the recruiting station there in Indianapolis, and there were all kinds of people lined up for all the different forces. And we were in the Marine Corps line. The Marine Corps line was not moving, and I don't know why. The Army line, there was more guys in the Army line, and the Army line was moving we're a more efficient branch of the military. Well, it's my experience. We had all, all five of us had that we'd gotten out of high school, drove directly to Indianapolis. We all had to go to work in just about an hour and 20 minutes. We had to be at work. So what are we going to do? Well, we stepped over in the Army line, and that's how I joined the Army instead of the Marine Corps. <laughs> it changed your entire life. Well, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Was that the old MEP station on South Pennsylvania? I believe that's correct. And so when I joined wow. in 1987, I just remember being in that place and there were pictures of, of people and I can't remember them, but you're thinking, wow, the number of people and what they've done who've come through this. Come through that state. The highlight for me was they gave me a McDonald's voucher. So <laughs> I thought I was high living there for a while. But you joined, you didn't get drafted. No, I joined. But they couldn't get us in. Now, this was in May of 1966. But they couldn't get us into the military until September because they didn't have any openings. That's, That's right. You have you know, to wait so for a time period. That's right. September 28th, I was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I'm going to tell the story. I've told it before, and it's it's about myself, but it's 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 typical of the Marine Corps mindset. So if you, I'll tell it very quickly, and I forgive. I ask forgiveness both <laughs> for the people in this room and for the audience. But it's a true story. So uh, I wanted to join the Marine Corps and I ended up joining the army. And the reason was, is because the army could actually get me in the service. Whereas the Marine Corps, you just had to wait so much longer. I'd graduated in June of 86 from Howe High School in the east side of Indianapolis and was re- knew I wanted to join the military. And it was just a matter of uh, making it happen. And so my mother, who I said, who was in the Marine Corps and a very proud Marine, she was in the kitchen cutting an apple. And I came through the back door uh, and was very proud to announce that I had joined the army. And I was with a friend of mine who drove me down there. And I came in and said, well, mother, I did it. I joined the service. And as she was cutting, she didn't even look back. (laughs) She said, I've always wanted one of my sons to join the Marines. I'm so proud. And I said, well, mom, they wouldn't, I couldn't get in the Marines till forever. So I just joined the army and without looking back and without, uh, stop the cutting of the apple she just said quite calmly but forcefully pussy (laughs) (laughs) i understand that (laughs) so that was kind of my that was kind of my you know induction ceremony bonus true story and congratulations if the, if the fellow who <laughs> if the fellow my good friend if he was still if he was in this room he would laugh because every time i see him he just shakes his head he goes that's still the greatest moment of my life and it's been 30 <laughs> some years ago I love true it. story 
Hello. You decided to join the military even though the war was raging. It hadn't really escalated to the late 60s effort, but you had had the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. You'd already had some significant battles. Did you know, hey, this is what I'm going to do, and this is where I could be sent? I joined the military because my love of my country, my grandpas, my dad, my two oldest brothers had all been in in the military, uh, Marine Corps and Navy and Army. And when Vietnam came along, I just knew I had to go do my job. And and that's when I left to go to the Army the first time, that's what my dad told me. Son, go do your job. And that's what I did. Military service does seem to run in families. Oh, certainly. Like I said, I have multiple uncles, both my parents, uh, one of my sons and my other son's going to join when he gets out of college, nieces and nephews, brothers. Do you have any sense as to why that is? Is it, is it, hey, I did it so you can do it? Or is it, hey, I did it so you better do it? It does seem to be like there's a lot of families who no one has served in the military, and I know several of those, and that's fine. I'm not being critical. But then I know several families right. where there's just an inordinate number who have stepped forward. Well, I just think it's part of the message of love for our country that's passed down. And those that have been in the military, you get to understand, that, well, that's the reason why they joined the military was because they love America and what it stands for. And it takes all of us doing our job to keep America free. Go do your job. And that's what I did. I went and done my job. I've never met anyone and the percentage of people who serve in the military who, who hear a shot fired in anger is low, low, minuscule. It's a very low percentage. But even among them, I've never heard someone say anything other than joining the military was the best decision I ever made. It's almost universal, whether it's, whether it's Greg Ballard, whether it's, you know, quite frankly, myself, it's the best decision I ever made. A lot of people I know who I met when I was in, and a lot of people I know who I've met in the public and private sector who have served. I think Governor Holcomb will tell you. Certainly. His time in the Navy was a huge bonus to him. And the lessons that he learned. That's exactly right. Would you call it the best decision? Let's make that back. Other than marrying your wife, Dixie. <laughs> Would you call it the best decision you ever made? Most certainly. Most certainly. As a young man, just graduating high school, uh, I thought I knew what the world was all about. You know, I, I was grown up. Joining the military, going to Vietnam, I got to see so much more of what the world really is. And how fortunate we are to live in this country. That's one of the things that I still carry in my heart was walking around and seeing this is where, what, the way all the people lived in Vietnam. And I thought, wow, and I thought I was poor. You know, <laughs> exactly. I was rich. And I had everything. And here these people don't have anything, but we're here to try to get them to have freedom. That's why I went to Vietnam was to help a country be free. So I've carried that with me in my heart all these years. And yes, I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life because it gave me more of an education. And I'm not talking specifically about book learning. I'm talking about education of life. And it's helped make me a better person. How long were you in the military before they said, Private Davis, you're shipping out to Vietnam? Was it preordained? Like you knew you were going there? or I were you- volunteered to go to Vietnam, yes. We were about halfway through basic training was when you could go down and talk to them and say, hey, yes, I want to go ahead and sign up to go to Vietnam. So we did. Where'd you go to basic training? Fort Jackson, South Carolina, B-62, best on the hill, sir. <laughs> I was at Fort Knox. And my son was at Fort Benning. Cool. But he did 11 Bravo of 11 Bang Bang Combat Infantryman. He knew he was going overseas to Afghanistan or Iraq just a matter of time. And I looked at him. I'm like what are you doing? And he says, nope, that's what I want to do. He said he loved the field. I love being out in the field. I love having that sense, that band of brothers sort of combat arms sense that you have that other people, quite frankly, don't have. That's a fact. Did you volunteer in Vietnam because you felt it was your particular duty beyond being in the military? Or, Or was it something higher, the freedom aspect that you were talking about before? Well, 
helping the people be free. That's why I went to Vietnam. I wanted the people of South Vietnam to be free. So that's why I volunteered to go. Which is what President Johnson, president at the time, and, and yes, sir. pretty much the the vast majority of American leadership at the time were saying, this we're, is what this fight's we're about. We're fighting in Vietnam to help a people be free. So I raised my hand. Yes, sir, I want to help. Did you know anyone who had served, had served and then like come back? And so you had a sense of what it would be like? At that point, no. I don't remember ever meeting anyone or being friends with people that had went already. Uh, not that I recall. How long were you there before you're like, oh, shoot, these guys are actually shooting at me? <laughs> Mooresville sounded pretty good right now. Uh, let's see. That was the night that we landed in Vietnam, and they took us to the 90th replacement, and that's the same night that they blew up the Long Bin ammunition dump, which was the largest repository of explosives in the world at that time. And the Viet Cong came in and blew it up. Our perimeter was the Long Bend ammunition dump, the 90th replacement. So we're in the tents, and it was, I don't know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and all this is happening right there. And now we'd seen movies. <laughs> you know, well, this is the way war is all about. You know, we're watching all the – we had one five five Projos unexploded landing in our compound because they had, were blowing up. All the all the different ammunition dumps there, and we had I, I, we had three come in and land where our little tent was, but they didn't blow up because they didn't have fuses in them. But we're going, wow, you know, well this is just like what we've seen in the movies. The rockets' red glare. <laughs> the rockets' red glare. Uh, it wasn't. We didn't know for sure what was happening because we were brand new in country, and it wasn't until the next day that the sergeant told us that what had really happened, that they had came in and had started blowing up pads on the world's largest ammunition dump, which was right out there. Of course, you could see all the blow-up places <laughs> in the daylight, and wow. You mentioned that the, you'd seen the movies. At what point in your deployment did you realize or think to yourself, oh, hell, this, isn't, this is this no movie. Like John Wayne did it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Cool. Uh, well, that occurred real, real early, basically, because it's not the way it was in the movies. <laughs> uh, when people are shooting at you, it's amazing where your mind goes. Uh, you try to become very small. Winston Churchill once said that being shot at without result is one of the sweetest sounds. <laughs> Would you like to comment on that? <laughs> I understand that totally. Uh, when you can hear bullets whizzing past you and not hitting it, you or any of your brothers, it's 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 scary, but it's they missed, you know. So and when you can see the people that's shooting at you miss, we always thought that the AK-47 rifle was a real inaccurate rifle because now we could see them, you know, eighty to one hundred and thirty yards away from us shooting at us, and they were missing. Is the, that the M16 was much more accurate? What we've later found out was that the AK-47 is a very accurate rifle. It's just that the people shooting it did not have the training to know how to properly shoot it. They were Viet Cong. They never had proper training. Uh, I can remember we set up we set up a five gallon bucket water at 200 yards. And shot it with an AK-47 and hit it dead on. And that's when we proved to the other guys that, hey, you know, these weapons are capable of it. It's just they don't have the training that you you men had. So we thanked all of our old sergeants. And, <laughs> cool. Did you did you have a sense of respect for the Viet Cong and and, and other people fighting against you as soldiers? I mean, some were clearly better than others. There was a lot of coercion. There were a lot of people thrown in before they were ready. Could you could you tell the difference on the battlefield? Like, okay, these people are the real deal. You can definitely you you could definitely tell the difference on the battlefield. On the most part, down where we were, we fought Viet Cong, and those were just people off the street that they were the protesters, basically, uh, and they would somebody would throw them a gun or a hand grenade and go kill the GI. 
yes, you could tell when you're fighting against them simply because of their tactics. We're not military. They just... Now, the night that I earned my Medal of Honor, we were up against North Vietnamese regulars. They had, they had uniforms on. And there was also Chinese uniforms that was there. Right. There was also at least two Russian uniforms on the deads that were there. Uh, we had to sign papers saying we would not talk about that for seven years at least. We could not say anything about it. Uh, well, it's been longer, seven years now, so we can... <laughs> the, the night of November the 18th, 1967, we were not only fighting NVA in uniform, we were fighting Chinese, which were we found out were instructors, and Russians, which were financial backers. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast sponsored by Veteran Strategies. My name is Robert Vane, and I'm your host. We are here with Medal of Honor recipient, Proud Hoosier, and we'll talk about in just a second, uh, Sachem Award recipient, the Governor Eric Holcomb, Sammy Davis. We've reached the point, it's November 18th, 1967. You wake up like any other day. Take us through that day. I'm not going to ask another question for a few minutes. Take us through that day. That's the day that you changed your life and became not only a hero to Hoosiers, but a hero to all Americans. Well, they, they hit us at 2 a.m. in the morning. And that previous evening, we had a helicopter land. We, we were out on op. Uh, we had four artillery pieces. There were 42 of us artillerymen. And the helicopter landed, and a major got out and gathered us, and he said, your probability of getting hit tonight is 100%. He got back on his helicopter and flew off. Well, what we didn't know, but we found out later, that one of the reasons why he could say that, he flew over the reinforced heavy weapons battalion of NVA that were just a few clicks away from us. And when that many people are heading through the jungle, they leave a pretty big track. They could see that they were headed direct towards us. Well, what the enemy was planning, they knew they had to get rid of the artillery first because the artillery would devastate them. Once the artillery was gone, they could do anything they want to the infantry. So that's why they were coming to get us first, and they hit us at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they were doing mass assault waves, and we did our job as soldiers the best that we could. Uh, we were set up right on the riverbank, and they would come directly across the river. Those that were hitting us were coming directly across the riverbank. And we could see on the other bank over there, back into the jungle, we could see hundreds of the enemy in uniform. You know, and we're just amazed that here we'd never fought anybody in uniform before. Everybody we'd fought up to that point had all been just, you know, had their silk pajamas on, their little, you know, boonie hat. <laughs> and so to be fighting soldier soldiers, that was very concerning. You know, well, what's happening that we're fighting soldier soldiers? And you don't lose till you quit trying. We maintained and did the very best, took care of each other, and next morning we were still there. At a certain point, you decided to go above and beyond. I decided to do for my brothers what I knew they would do for me. When I looked across the river and seen, I just seen the one man, Gwendell Holloway. Gwendell's from Stockton, California. And when I seen Gwendell standing over there, he stood up and waved his boonie hat and said, don't shoot, I'm a GI. Well, I knew I had to go get him. I, it, it broke my heart. To th I had been shooting beehive several rounds. Beehive rounds. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. At, at Gwendell. And it just shattered me that, wow, I didn't know that we had any troops over there still. And... So I knew I had to go get him. So I jumped in the river and swam across with the help of an air mattress. And when I got there, I planted the air mattress in the bushes and made my way. Now, the enemy was still doing their job, and I didn't have a weapon with me. I was out of ammunition, actually. So I made my way to where I'd last seen the foxhole, where I'd last seen Gwendal stand. And when I got to the foxhole, there were three men in that foxhole instead of just one. Well, I didn't know for sure what to do, so I, I prayed to the one above, 
to give me the strength to carry all three of my brothers at one time because I knew I couldn't make three trips. Uh, I had an AK-47 round on my right leg. I had 30 beehive holes in my body. Uh, I was burnt. The back was broke. Ribs were crushed. But you I weren't exactly Mark Spitz when it exactly. came to swimming. Yes, sir. Well, I could swim. I just because the shape of my exactly. body. Exactly. Because of the shape of my body. But there again, I asked the one above to give me the strength to carry all three of my brothers. And I put Jim Deister right across my shoulders. One leg was on each side of my arm. His head hanging here on my shoulder. I picked up Gwendell, picked up Billy Ray, and away we went. Well, Glenn, Gwendell still had about a half a clip of ammo in his 16. And... I was dragging them back towards the riverbank, and here the enemy would come. You could hear them coming when 150 to 200 of the enemies coming through the jungle. You can hear them. And I'd lay the guys down real quick. Now, there were unbelievable amount of dead NVA on the ground. So we would lay down, and it was dark. So we'd lay down and just act like the rest of them, and they would literally run over us. Well, I would watch those young men my enemy come towards me i had gwendell's m16 i was laying face up on top of them and when the enemy would come if they you could watch their eyes most of them were just scared kids like we were doing what their sergeant just told them to do they were running that way well as they would run past if they didn't recognize me us for what we were i let them pass but then you'd see the one look at you, and he's seen you, and you could see that he knew what you was, and he would start to move his weapon while well, I would do my job as a soldier. Well, when I run out of ammunition, <laughs> I threw the river or threw the M16 in the river because I didn't want the enemy to get it, and made it back to the river bank, put the guys on the air mattress, and ferried him back across. I took Jim Deister across first because we thought he, Jim was dead, but I wasn't going to leave his body there because we were seeing what they were doing to the bodies that were left, and you don't want that to happen. Plundering and mutilating. And oh, yeah. Well, that's Jim. He was shot, Jim was shot through the head, so you could look at him and see that he was dead, and they went up and shot him anyway, shot him right here, but it missed his spine. So it didn't break his back, but he was shot twice and had shrapnel wounds. But I wasn't going to leave the body over there. So I told Wendell and Billy Ray, I said, I'll take Jim across to come right back and get you. So I swam across. Well, as soon as I got to the our side of the bank, well, Frank Gage and Bill Murray jumped in the river and helped me get Jim Deister out. Well, I immediately went back right across. Billy Ray and Wendell could both hang on. So they hang hung on to the air mattress and i pulled them back across uh, the next morning after everything was done we were we had jim deister laid with the rest of the the dead because we thought he was dead and i remember picking jim up and taking him over and laying laying him in the helicopter on a stack of bodies and I stepped back away, and it just broke my heart to see our brothers laying there dead. I passed out. My body said, okay, you've done your job. My guys ended up loading me on that same helicopter and took off. Uh, well, Jim Deister was not dead. Uh, God bless him. He talked to the people later that was on there on the flight. They said the medic seen a bubble come out of the chest wound that Jim mm. had and he put his stethoscope on and there was a 25 beats a minute heartbeat which meant that he had lost a tremendous amount of blood but he was still alive and they they started giving him fluid I don't know if they gave him blood or just liquids I don't but they started giving him fluids and Jim Deister's alive and well and doing wonderful Right now. Right now. Yes, sir. He, he's in better shape than I am. God bless him. <laughs> God bless him. I've got to hold all of Jim's kids. I've got to hold all of Jim's grandbabies. They call me Uncle Grandpa Sam. <laughs> When's the last time you saw him? Uh, Jim, last year. Yeah, we, in 2016, we went back to Vietnam. We went back to the exact location. And I was going to ask you about that because yes, that, that became kind of a, a bigger deal 
as you got into the 90s, more yes, folks kind of Well, I always said that, well, I'd like to go back to Vietnam. Well, I'd like to go back to Vietnam. Uh, in 2016, I turned 70 years old, and I realized that, you know, if I don't go back real quick, <laughs> I may not be able to go. So got a hold of Jim Deister and his wife, Rita, and they said, yeah, we'd like to go too. So we got set up with some friends out of California, and they took care of us, took us to Vietnam. We got to go to every place that I was stationed at in Vietnam. We got to go to the exact site of where I earned my medal and swim across that river and got Jim Deister. Jim Deister had a set of the original orders that had the map on it of where you're supposed to be and had the grid coordinates on it. We typed the grid coordinates into our cell phones and the cell phone told us, you know, no, you got to go a little left. You got to go a little right. I mean, it was so cool. You know, wow. Oh, wow. We're standing on the exact spot where I pulled you across the river. And it was, it was neat. How were you, before we go back to the medal of honor ceremony with president Lyndon Johnson, how were you received when you went back there by the Vietnamese? By the people? Vietnamese, the, the Vietnamese treated us wonderful. I mean, truly, truly wonderful. Little kids when we're walking down the street in Saigon, uh, little kids would run up to us and touch our arm and look us in the eye and say, "Thank you." Our interpreter told us he said that's probably the only word of English that that young man or young lady knows. But that means that someone in their family has instructed them that when they see a GI, any American to them is a GI, when they see a GI, that they're to go thank them for our freedom. And they'd hear these young kids would come running up and they'd look you right in the eye and touch your arm and say, thank you. It, it just made your heart blow up. It, it, was, it was great. You, Truly. Mentioned, you mentioned the next day. So the next day you wake up, after sleeping, assuming that you got some sleep or in nope. hospital? Oh, the, after the battle? Correct. Uh, I woke up at Camp Zama, Japan. So you went there. They, you, were you like, is this a dream? Did I, I dream I, what just happened the last yes, 36 sir. hours? I, I passed out standing there by the helicopter, and they loaded me up. And When, when I woke up at Camp Zama, Japan, I was it was two or three days later, and I was running 107 fever. Unbelievably high fever. Totally dehydrated, bad shape. Uh, but General Westmoreland came, and he, I told him, I said, I didn't. They, said, they told me they were going to retire me from the Army and send me home. I said, but I don't want to retire from the Army. I don't want to go home. I want to go back to Vietnam and be with my brothers. I didn't even know what the name of it was then, closure because Mm -hmm. i had passed out i didn't have the chance to go around and talk to the rest of the guys and general westmoreland understood and he let me he said i I had to be able to my fever had to drop i had to be able to walk well they sent me back to saigon to the hospital third field hospital and i was there for another month and then i got to go back to my unit now i still had Packing, you know what packing is? Sure, yeah. Packing in my wounds. I had two IV bottles of fluids that I had to have on a daily basis, and but I got to go back. They they made me cook. That's how I told mom. I said, now I know how you get to be a cook in the army. <laughs> <laughs> get shot. Get all blowed up, and they make you cook. General Westmoreland is General William Westmoreland, William who was Charles the American. American commander, four-star general in Vietnam. He was like a daddy. Talk about that. He, General Westmoreland Please. and I got to be extremely close, good friends, him and his wife, Kitsy. When I was in the hospital in Saigon, this was just after my fever started coming and going a little bit, and I would wake up and here would be this beautiful young lady touching me, touching my chest, touching my arm, touching my face. I didn't know who she was. I thought she was a nurse. Well, after being there a day or a few days, I heard one of the nurses or nurses' attendants, whatever. I heard one of the other ladies that was there at the hospital say, oh, here comes Kitsy Westmoreland again. 
Kitsy Westmoreland. Well, when she came in, I, my fever started dropping, and I was feeling better, and I realized that she wasn't a nurse. It was General Westmoreland's wife, Kitsy. She came to see me almost every day, almost every day, and she would come in and talk and just just touch me, see if, where my fever was. Uh, and when Westy could, he would stop by and talk to me. Why do you think they singled you out, or were you part of a regular tour? Yes. <laughs> Both? About two weeks prior to the night that I earned my Medal of Honor, Westy, he, he was famous for just appear. You'd be out on an op in the woods, in the jungle, and General Westmoreland's helicopter would appear and sit down, and he'd come talk to you, to talk to the troops. Of course, that just totally frightened the commanders, but it made the troops feel good. <laughs> well, we were out on an operation. There again, we, no, well, we had two guns. I think we just had a few guns. There wasn't the whole battery, but we were out on an operation. Westy landed. We seen General Westmoreland. Now, we were busy firing. We had a sustained fire going on. We had four guns. Yep, I remember it because the four guns were going, you know, boom, 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 boom. One, the idea of it was that one round was landing on the ground consistently. And what we were doing was trying to, we were firing for the infantry in between the where our infantry was and the enemy was. And after a few rounds, then we would move it 50 yards closer to the enemy, 50 yards closer with sustained fire. We weren't, we weren't really getting any fire. We were just trying to push the enemy back away from our infantry. And they, they were three mile away. So when the grunt, when the helicopter landed and the captain said, it's general William Giles Westmoreland, he said, just do whatever he wants. When Westy comes to your gun, you quit firing. The other three guns will pick up the pace so we can keep the boom, boom, boom going. Well, we were the last gun that he stopped, that he talked to. And, of course, we fell in. Uh, Westy, there were just four of us running the whole, the whole gun. And Westy, I could hear the questions that he was asking the other three guys, which was the basic questions that generals ask you know are you getting your child you getting your letters from home you know sure and of course we knew that our job was to say yes sir everything is wonderful <laughs> well when westy got to me and he looked me right in the eye and i looked him right back in the eye and now i had a pair of boots on that had three toes hanging out of each boot and the reason that's the jungle boots they were supposed to let the water out and your feet would dry up well the jungle boots didn't work that well. Mine, my boots were rotting. Now, I could have traded my boots for a brand new pair of boots at any time, but my feet were in much better sh shape than most of the other kids that I was serving with. Uh, you couldn't believe the sores that were, because you get mm. jungle, we called it jungle rot. Uh, you just get big open sores on your feet, and because they were always wet, they never scabbed over and they never healed. You could look down and see tendons. Mm. in their foot you know if they move their toes like you could see the tendons moving in the open sores and they never healed well mine were much better because i had the big holes in the side of my boots i could let the water out my feet would dry up bit quicker so westy's asking the other three troops you know how's everything going of course they're saying yes everything's wonderful and he gets to me looks me in the eye and he's looking down of course we're muddy looks down at my feet and i seen his eyes get big i wiggled my toes at him and he said, Private, is that the only pair of boots you have? Well, it was my only pair of boots. I said, Yes, sir. Well, he turned to say something to my captain and noticed my captain had on a brand new pair of Cochrane jump boots, which is really high-end military boots. And he turned back to me and he said, Private, what size are your boots? I said, 10W, sir. He turned to my captain and he said, Captain, what size are your boots? My captain said, 10W, sir. He said, Take them boots off and give them to that boy. That's how I got introduced to General William <laughs> Child Westmoreland. Well, when I ended up in the hospital just a couple of weeks later, that's what I told when the doctor told me that they were going to send me home and retire me. I said, contact General William Childs Westmoreland. Me and him's just like that. He just gave me a new pair of boots a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> well, what I didn't know was that when the colonel in charge of the hospital called General Westmoreland's office and got to talk to General Westmoreland, 
General Westmoreland had just laid down the paperwork that would ultimately end up being my Medal of Honor citation. His words, and he said, son, I would have given you the world, and all you wanted to do was to go back to Vietnam and be with your brothers. That's how I got to go back to Vietnam to be with my brothers. And it, I know it, it helped my soul to be able to sit down with the men that I served with and talk to them. It, it helped save my life. You've received a silver star as well. Yes, sir. Which is an extremely high. That's I believe the third it's highest. The third highest yes. Yes, sir. Medal for Valor. Is the silver star related to that same night or yes. is it a different night? No. And I believe there's something special about that. If you want to go ahead. Well, the state department after 45 years, the state department took it away from me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, which there's a lot more to that story that I won't go into, but I had asked General Westmoreland when I left Fort Hood, Texas, to go to Washington, D.C. to get the Medal of Honor. Well, sir, do I take the Silver Star off? And he said, no, son. My intention is for you to keep the Silver Star and to keep the Medal of Honor. Because you received the Silver Star for what you did, and then the Medal of Honor is a big review process. The Silver Star citation and the Medal of Honor citations are... Together, but yet what I did to receive the Silver Star is a little different from what I did to receive the Medal of Honor. And he said, that's why I want you to keep the Silver Star. Uh, They took it away from me a few years ago, so I don't wear the Silver Star no more. Talk a little bit, please, to the Leaders and Legends audience about what it was like, how you felt when someone came to you and said, Sammy, this is what's about to happen. I mean, as far as the Medal of Honor yes, sir. award? Well, when they told me, I said, I don't deserve the Medal of Honor. I'm not a hero. I simply did for my brothers what I knew they'd do for me. That don't make me a hero. And they said, well, you're going to be receiving the Medal of Honor. So I decided I would go with all the love in my heart that I could for all my brothers and received the Medal of Honor for them. Now, my name's on the back of it. That just means I'm the caretaker because I firmly believe that that medal belongs to all. It's not just one person that, that it belongs to all of us. And I am just the caretaker of it. So I've tried to do my very best job in caretaking the Medal of Honor in all these years that I've had it. What was it like to be in the presence of Lyndon Johnson? Well, as he told me after the ceremony, he took us into a little room and we had private conversations. And he said, son, I've got a little ranch just 90 miles south of where you're stationed, Fort Hood, Texas. He said, come see me when you can. Well, he pulled a card out of his pocket and it was his personal card. And it had the combination of the gate that goes into you're kidding. the Johnson Ranch. Well, I, it, I think it was about two weeks by the time settled down enough, I was back at Fort Hood, Texas, and so well, I'll go. So I called, and Lady Bird answered the phone. She says, "Well, the the president's not here right now, but you're welcome to come on down. He may be able to attend." So I went down and poked the numbers in the gate and got to go in. I, I got to go there at least three, maybe five times, and the president was never there. But Lady Bird and I got to be very good friends. She loved wildflowers. And all throughout the ranch, we we walked and talked. And she would say, and this flower is a whatever. And then we got that on our trip to Yugoslavia. Uh, All these beautiful flowers, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful flowers. She, When I was there at the ranch, she would call the president, and I would get to talk to the president on the phone, uh, but he was never there when I, when I was there. Well, her beautification efforts were throughout the country. Oh, yes, sir. Most definitely. She was a sweet lady. Sweet lady. How much longer did you stay in the military? Well, I was medically retired twice out of the military. <laughs> Stubborn, uh, are you? <laughs> when I got to... Let's see, I got to stay in my original three-year enlistment, and then I was medically retired. Well, General Westmoreland knew the governor of Illinois. Now, I had gotten married, young lady from Flat Rock, Illinois, and 
the governor of Illinois wanted a Medal of Honor recipient to join the Illinois National Guard because they needed the positive PR. Well, as being medically retired, I could not legally join the Guard. I'm medically retired. Well, General Westmoreland and the governor worked out a deal, and I got to join the Illinois Guard, but I didn't get paid legally. That's why Dixie handles all the money today. <laughs> uh, but I, I stayed in 18 years and got to – we continuously traveled – talking to troops all over the world uh when westy was still active he would still come get me and we would go talk to troops everywhere you get promoted to chief of staff is that right after vietnam and then creighton abrams came in yes is that right yes got to go Uh, of the fellow you received the medal of honor in the late 60s so there's you know a huge number of world war even probably world war one but world war two korean war uh Medal of Spanish, Honor recipients. There were Spanish American War living recipients when I joined. Really? Yes, sir. Um, and wow. I don't remember their name at the moment, but I, I can remember. Wow, we're meeting. That there were at least two Spanish American War Boxer Rebellion. Uh, of course, they they were old then. Sure. Maybe give us one or two names of of people you looked at or you got to know and just thought to yourself or said to them. What you did is absolutely incredible. The bravery you showed, because you've heard that a lot to you, like what you did, Sammy, what you did, Sergeant Davis, is so incredible. We just can't fathom how you survived or or the adrenaline it took and the dedication it took. Were there one or two people where you looked at and like, you know, I'm lucky to be alive and, and I feel very grateful, but I don't know how in the hell you're still alive and you made it through what you did. I had the privilege of knowing Eddie Rickenbacker, Pappy Boynton, Jimmy Doolittle, and they were the first recipients that I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to. And that is exactly what I told them. You know, you're unbelievable. You know, your display of courage and faith inspires me. And still does. God was bless Audie Murphy still alive? He was, wasn't he? Yeah, Audie was. I got to meet Audie twice before he was killed in '71. I was believe. Was it a plane crash? I think. Yes, sir. Uh, MacArthur had died before then. He had died in the mid yes, '60s. Uh, fast forward several years because I do want to ask you about some presidents, but I have to get this in, or I'll have done a disservice to podcast listeners there's a movie called forrest gump <laughs> yes sir and life is mo- like a box of chocolates <laughs> <laughs> you never know yeah. what you're going to get <laughs> when they when your friends call you the original forrest gump do you think they're honoring you or they're making fun of you yes <laughs> <laughs> so tom hanks plays this character based on a novel by winston groom who's yes, also a pretty darn good civil war historian cool. yes sir and uh there's a scene in the movie, a part of the movie where Tom Hanks is in Vietnam and he performs these exploits that in the movie result in him receiving the Medal of Honor from President Johnson. The exploits of Tom Hanks in that movie are based on exactly what Sammy Davis did to earn the Medal of Honor. Yes, sir. The presentation scene where Tom Hanks receives the Medal of Honor from Lyndon Johnson is Tom Hanks's face face superimposed over Sammy Davis's face. That's a fact. Yes, sir. Please tell our audience how that whole thing came about, how much you were involved, how they contacted you. You know, if you ever met Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks and I are friends, uh, Lieutenant Dan and I are very close friends. Gary Sinise. Yes, sir. Actor who does more for veterans than almost anyone. In fact, Gary Sinise called me yesterday. (laughs) Uh, We we stay in very close contact. Uh, It's it's an honor and a privilege to know them. Tom Hanks is a great actor. He did a wonderful job portraying my actions in Vietnam. I'm very proud of him. So tell us, I mean, how did they approach you? Why did they choose you over, you know, others that obviously they could have chosen? Originally, they thought I was dead. And that's how they, but they didn't name the movie after me because 
they'd had to pay me if it would have been Sammy Davis. That's why the movie's called Forrest Gump. <laughs> it was based on Winston Groom's book, right. Forrest Gump. Uh, at one point, that they were going to make a whole new movie and Sammy Davis. But they they kept the Forrest Gump thingy. So it worked. It worked. And so well. did someone from Hollywood or the studio or the producer or whomever say, Winston Look. Groom, at the time we were living in Flat Rock, Illinois, and he came to Robinson, which is the closest town to Flat Rock. Uh, Flat Rock's very, very, very small, about like Freedom. and Freedom, Indiana, where this podcast is being recorded <laughs> yes, as we speak. And he would stand, He Winston Groom stood at Walmart and people thought he was a greeter. And he would have a <laughs> a notepad and say, do you know Sammy Davis? Well, at that point, I'd lived there 30 years with my wife. And they said, oh, yeah, we know Sam. Well, tell us a story. Well, then when he started getting stories, then he would say, uh, do you know Sammy Davis? Well, yeah. Well, tell us about that time he drove his pickup truck off the levee into the river. And I'm just using that as an example. So everybody thought that he really knew me, knew me, and so they—that's how he got to fill in all these other things. The story, the 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 movie Forrest Gump. Everything in the movie touches my life, but it's movie. You understand that, you know? It's if I sneezed, well, in the movie I wiped out twenty people. <laughs> uh, it's it's movie, but yeah, they they did a good job. Did you get to go? Did you supervise? No, like sir. The, no, the, no. I had no contact with that's. They they chose to. They didn't have to pay me. Because you know the movie didn't make any money. It's still making money. They exactly. just had the twenty fifth show, twenty exactly. fifth year in Washington D.C. and Paramount Pincher, for Paramount Movie Studios brought me and my wife to Washington D.C. They showed it on the mall. They had a great big giant screen set up and. Hmm. It was wonderful. Did you go to the premiere at the time, or was no, that not, your first not, not at the interaction? Time, no. Not at the time. Uh, I've got to deal with the movie making people about Forrest Gump several times throughout the years, but not at the time. How long was it before your friends or family or or fellow Medal of Honor recipients or people with whom you served saw the movie and go, "Wait a second." This looks really familiar. Yeah, it was immediately. They, everybody knew. Of course, at home, everybody knew that this guy had been there talking. That was in 92 or 93. And then, boom, the movie comes out. And, well, here's this movie that's got Sam's life in it. So, basically, everybody knew about it. And Tom Hanks was just in town for NBC for the 500. Did you get to see him? I did. We were already engaged someplace else. So, no, sir, I did not get to make that. When was the last time you went overseas, gave a speech in front of, whether it's Boy Scouts or troops? Is that something you do pretty regularly? We're on the road 200 plus days a year, traveling and speaking all over. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to schools. That's my favorite. I mean, we talk to Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. They have us travel all over the United States, encouraging their employees but i enjoy talking to the children in schools the most uh wow we have great kids in this country truly we sure have, do we have great kids we've got parents that need work but we've got great kids and i believe in the youngsters that are coming up today with all my heart has a movie about vietnam ever gotten it right all of them touch the rights here but it's, some of them are real light touches and some of them are slaps but uh all of them have a little bit of truth in it and it's movie and i think of the mel gibson movie we were soldiers that is cool. seems to be just a terrific i mean i have to say i watch it every time it comes on and on those memorial day weekends or veterans day weekends you're oh, like oh, i'll watch this three or four times did you know a lieutenant who ended up being a lieutenant general lieutenant general moore or Sergeant Major Plumley, or did you get to meet those guys? Uh, yes, sir. They were all friends that I'd met after. You've also met several presidents. I have met every president since Lyndon Johnson and been friends with most of them. And my understanding is that, uh, actually, I hate to say, I got scolded, remember, Spangle, in a previous podcast 
one of my favorite presidents happens to be Richard Nixon. Cool. And my and and I defend most, if not all. Uh, but my understanding is you had a special friendship with him. Yes, sir. He there again. He treated me like a son. Him and Nancy were really good people. Uh, I I was young and didn't know or follow politics at the time, so I didn't know what all was going on. All I knew was how Richard Nixon treated me and how he made me feel, and I loved him. Did you get to see uh, uh, President Nixon and, and his wife, Pat, after he left the White House? Or yes, just sir. Kinda... We would go to events in California, and while they were still alive, well, well even after president passed nancy would still come to some of our functions in california so there were a lot of other military heroes in service people like bob dole cool. uh, senator daniel in a way medal of honor recipient. well yes sir talk about some of these men maybe and women you met who weren't presidents uh, but still entered public life after a solid military career, a heroic military career. What was it like to meet them and immediately have that connection? It's one of the things that have inspired me to continue going. Uh, you don't lose to a quit trying. And then anyway, I, what a sweet man. Uh, what a good man. And he inspired all of us younger Medal of Honor recipients to keep going. Another member of the Senate who was awarded the medal of honor was Nebraskan cool. Bob Carey he was a Navy seal lost. I believe the lower yes, part of one of his legs yes, sir. as a result. Did you ever, do you have a relationship with him and what's he like? Uh, Bob Carey has been a brother from the get go. Uh, I helped Bob run for governor, did what I could to help Bob run for governor. Uh, I still believe in Bob. He has become very recluse and I haven't seen him now for several years, uh, but occasionally He'll call or something, let me know that everything's going okay. One last thing I want to say before before we close the podcast is I read this quote once by Harry Truman when he was awarding the Medal of Honor to several people as part of the Korean conflict. And I'm going to get the quote mostly right. He told them as he was pinning the award around their neck, I'd much rather have one of these than be president of the United States. Yes, sir. How does that make you feel to be the member of such a select class that presidents and celebrities and elected officials and business leaders look at you and and figuratively and literally click their heels in your honor? It's inspiring. And there again, that's one of the things that keeps inspiring me to continue on, to continue trying to motivate America to stand up for what you believe is right in your heart. I try very hard not to speak politics. I talk to all the, all the, the Democrats, Republicans, the whatever. I talk to everybody. I want everybody to stand up for what you believe is right in your heart. That's what America is all about. One of the things that's taken place, which is a terrific development is while America has always honored its veterans, there was a period of time after Vietnam where they were maybe seen as as uh, seen differently, perceived differently. Because there were of those the, that definitely seen us at a, in a different eye. That's right, because of the the divisions about the war itself that certainly didn't exist about World War II. Of course, now you can hardly go through a ceremony without uh, the moderator, the MC, saying, "Will veterans please stand." And when you stand and when you see others stand, how does that make you feel about how the country has changed its opinion and perception and honoring of America's veterans? It makes you very proud. One of the reasons why that's happening today is because what happened to the Vietnam veterans 40, 45 years ago, and we made the promise to ourselves, we'll never allow another veteran to be treated the way we were treated. So that's one of the reasons that we're out on the road inspiring America to stand up for what you believe is right and treat our veterans. You know, I've been to the airport many times and a lot of different airports when we hear that some of our troops are coming home. Well, I want to be there and bring as many. Well, we have other people in the room that do that also. And that's and the what honor flights are amazing. Oh, the honor flights are awesome. Yes, sir. 
for for several years, no medals of honor were awarded. And I and please correct me, but I think I read in more than one place where recipients like you and others were saying, "Look, we need to keep this going. There are young men who deserve this yes, award, and we need to start giving them out." Uh, George W. Bush did it. President uh, Barack Obama recently, just recently, President Trump awarded a Medal yes, of Honor. Twenty fifth of June, yes, sir. And which is the anniversary of the Korean conflict, yes, sir. So when you see these young men receive the medal of honor what's that what's that like for you it makes your heart proud it makes your heart very proud to know that you know there are still young men and women that are out there doing the very best for their brothers and sisters and that's what that's what life is all about you do for your brothers and sisters what you know they'll do for you and that's what motivates you that's too many people think the medal of honor because it's only awarded for war, that the Medal of Honor is about hatred. The Medal of Honor is not about hatred. The Medal of Honor is about love because it's the love that motivates you to do the things that you are required to do to earn a Medal of Honor. Well, the Leaders and Legends podcast has has already in its short life been blessed with some amazing guests, whether it's former Marine Lieutenant Colonel Greg Ballard or former Deputy Chief of Staff, two mayors, former people in the governor's office, business leaders. We've had a terrific collection already with more to come. But dare I say that no one had made me more proud to receive his assent to interview him than Sammy Davis. What he's done for his country and what he continues to do for veterans with the help of his wife, Dixie, and quite frankly, with the help of one of the greatest promoters of veterans and veteran causes I know, a Miss Jill Fuel. Ooh. We just simply can't thank you enough in so many ways. And it's thank an you, honor brother. to be here. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.